Good evening. If you would, turn to Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24. That's where we're going to be, at least to start off with. You say, well, I thought we were studying the book of Acts. Well, we are, but we're going to look at Luke 24 first. There is a recurring theme that I'm finding that's playing out, not playing out in my life, but playing out as I had the opportunity of talking with um, just Christians, especially Christians who are preparing to uh, enter different relationships, could be marital relationships, could just be um, relationships with other brothers and sisters in Christ um, as they strengthen. Uh, and, and that's this. In the context of relationships, there are very few things that are more destructive uh, in a relationship than unmet expectations. There's very few things that are more destructive in a relationship than unmet expectations. And so I want you to think of specific contexts where that could play out. So, for example, in the family, what are your expectations for, if you're married, your spouse? And your spouse's expectations for you. And a lot of times you discover them along the way when you haven't met them or they haven't met yours. You didn't even realize you had that expectation. How about parents and kids? How about siblings, uh, in-laws, that sometimes we discover that we're expecting something from someone and we didn't even realize we were expecting it until they didn't meet our expectation. And these feelings of angst and anger and frustration come, and maybe they come from them, uh, the other person in, in the relationship, and you don't even realize what they're upset about until... They articulate it, and then you're like, wow, I didn't even know that was something you were thinking about. You, know, you think in the context of life, the fulfillment of the job, and perhaps you, know, you made a career choice, and you decided to enter uh, a particular field of study or work, and thinking that it was going to bring about a level of fulfillment, and it does not do that. And so there's this expectation that, that hasn't been met. And now it's more a source of, of bitterness and frustration, perhaps. Uh, so maybe, maybe you've discovered this, a satisfaction with material things, where you think, once I get this home, or once I move, or once we purchase this car and get rid of the existing car, um, that, that once that expectation, you know, once I have that, then things are going to be better. And, and maybe they are for a short period of time, but it's short-lived. And so now... Maybe you're faced with uh, an expectation that, that just wasn't fulfilled. Maybe your physical health. You were expecting that at the age of 35, you would be really, really healthy and strong. And in fact, maybe it's not been that. Maybe you were expecting uh, that you wouldn't experience some of the difficulties that others have. And, and maybe growing up or maybe in your youth, you looked at people who got sick all the time. You're like, man... What's their problem? They must be faking it all the time. And now you're sick all the time, right? And, and so there's a sense of, I should be doing this, this, and this, but I'm not able to do this because of just the way things are. How about in the church? Relationships in the church. People that have you know, been intertwined with your ministry and your life, and, and for whatever reason, um, things aren't going as planned. They aren't, um, they aren't perhaps living out what exactly uh, you think they should be. Or perhaps they aren't growing at the rate that a normal Christian should be. Or perhaps as you're in a discipling relationship, you're, you're studying the scripture and you're going through a particular aspect of application and, and there it is. I mean, it's as clear as the noses on your face when it comes to the Bible and, and you go over it and, and it's just, they're just not growing. And it's, it's frustrating. So we enter a scenario where all of the moons of Jupiter have aligned, as it were, for the disciples to enter into a tailspin of despair and gloom and frustration when it comes to unmet expectations. And the reason why I say that is because of what we're going to be looking at today. Except the disciples didn't enter into a tailspin of gloom and despair. Instead, they approached it with joy. In fact, I ask you to look at Luke chapter 24. And I want us to start here in verse 50. 
And Jesus led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. While he was blessing them, he parted from them and was carried up into heaven. Now, keep in mind here that 40 days earlier, the disciples royally blew it. These were not men that had um, perhaps a recent track record of, of great spiritual success. And then 40 days after that, Jesus ascends into heaven and, and he's trained them and he's talked with them and now it's, it's them. It's on them. But, I mean, even within the band of 12, you had one that failed pretty miserably. In fact, he, he defected altogether. He was, he was an unbeliever. Yet look at what the disciples Look at how the disciples approach us. And this was actually kind of revolutionary for me as I was studying out Acts chapter 1, which is where we're going to eventually be. Because in my mind, I'm thinking, man, they just lost Jesus. They were wrestling with the, the failure of Judas. You know, what type of things would they be struggling with? And then I went back and I'm like, well, it, it stands to reason that I should probably read uh, Luke's first work, Luke, and then read the beginning of Acts, because the end of Luke and the beginning of Acts, I mean, it's, it's the same author, and, and if you were here last, last week, you, you, you heard that, that Luke really wrote the first one as the works of Jesus Christ, and then his second letter, Acts, was the works of Jesus Christ through the apostles. So you have the end of one letter and the beginning of the other letter. Well, in order to really understand the beginning of the second letter, let's look at the end of the first. And it says this, verse 52, and they, after worshiping him returned to Jerusalem with great joy and were continually in the temple praising God. They went back to Jerusalem and they were filled with joy. And they were ready to go. So how is it that men with unmet expectations meet those unmet expectations with a sense of joy and not with a sense of despair. And really, that's what we're going to be looking at today in the context of Acts chapter 1. So go ahead and turn to Acts 1. That's where we'll be for the rest of the time. And tonight, really, our big idea, our main thought that I want to leave with you is this. When situations leave you feeling confused and certain and uncertain, when situations leave you feeling confused and uncertain, depend on the promises of God's word and the blessings of other Christians. Okay? When circumstances leave you feeling confused and uncertain, depend on the promises of God's word and the blessings of other Christians. Okay? And so we'll see this play out in Acts chapter 1. So if you haven't turned to Acts chapter 1, please do so. There are 26 verses. I'm not going to read all 26 verses, but I am going to highlight certain sections. And we'll focus in on, on particular areas that I think are really important for us to understand. Remember, Acts is a story. This is a narrative. And so we're starting the story with Jesus Christ, pre-church. He's about to ascend. And the disciples are about to, I mean, we know the end of the story. The disciples are about to really see God work in a pretty amazing way and actually have the church begin in chapter 2. But in chapter 1, we see the ascent of Jesus. And the first thing I want us to notice here in regards to our depending on the promises of God's word and the blessings of other Christians, the first thing I want us to see is that instead of seeing God's plan as an obstacle, remember his instruction to you. Okay, first point. Instead of seeing God's plan as an obstacle, remember his instruction to you. Now you say, what in the world are you talking about? Seeing God's plan as an obstacle. Well, yeah, let's look at this. All right, so verse 6 in Acts chapter 1. So when they, the disciples, had come together, they were asking Jesus, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? So here's where we start to introduce this whole concept of expectations. Because the disciples fully expected Jesus to restore the kingdom to Israel at this time. Why would they expect that? Well, they had been talking about it for quite some time. I mean, if you go back and read the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus was proclaiming, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You also have the disciples themselves in Matthew chapter 10 saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. They'd been talking about the kingdom. And yet, 
even after the resurrection, you have the disciples being taught by Jesus about the kingdom. Look at verse 3. It says, To these, Jesus also presented himself alive after suffering by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over a period of 40 days and doing what? And speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. So he's teaching them during this 40-day period about the kingdom of God. And the disciples, seeing the resurrected Christ, were fully anticipating this to take place. Is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? Now, Jesus had not redefined the kingdom to be something just simply spiritual. And there's some commentators that look at this passage and see this kingdom kind of shifting. That what Jesus perhaps had been presenting earlier on, it may have been a literal kingdom, but really now Jesus is just focusing on the spiritual kingdom. But that's not what the disciples were expecting. They were expecting a social, national Israel, a kingdom in Israel, to be established. And Jesus had proclaimed this kingdom. And he'd spent the last 40 days instructing them about the true nature of kingdom. So when we see the disciples asking about this, we shouldn't look at them as if they somehow misunderstood what was going on or if they were misguided. He didn't correct their question. Look at verse 7. He said to them, It is not for you to know times or epochs which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Jesus assumed their question was accurate. It wasn't that he was saying, Well, no, 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 no. I'm not establishing the kingdom. It wasn't a matter of if the kingdom was going to be set up. It was when the kingdom was going to be set up. That's what Jesus was addressing. And though the kingdom would not be established right then, there were other responsibilities in the meantime. So look at verse 8. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria, even to the remotest part of the earth. Okay? So, if I can make a point of comparison here. This is kind of like um, let's, let's imagine you're at work, and your boss tells you, you're going to get a raise. And you say, great. And he says, I'm not going to tell you when you're going to get a raise, but you're going to get a raise. Okay. And so you're working, working, working. A couple months go by. You go to your boss, and you say, hey, you said you were going to give me that raise. I haven't seen it yet. But this is a trustworthy guy or gal, depending on the type of boss you have. And so the boss talks to you and says, listen, you have to trust me. I guarantee you'll have a raise. Don't worry about when it's going to come. It's going to come. You just work hard. Keep doing your job. That's, in essence, what Jesus was doing with his disciples. He's saying, yes, there's going to be a kingdom. Yes, I will establish my kingdom here on earth. Don't worry about the timing. Instead, here's what you need to do. Go spread the gospel. That was their responsibility. They were already told to wait in Jerusalem for the empowering of the Holy Spirit. Look at verse 4. We're kind of going back a little bit in Acts. Jesus says, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem. Okay? Disciples, don't go anywhere. Stay put. Don't leave until the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Now, when we see this, hopefully our minds go back to John chapter 14. Maybe they do, maybe they don't. It's the end of the day. So, John chapter 14, where Jesus, the night before he was to be crucified, spends quite a bit of time talking to them about the Holy Spirit. And that by his departure, the Holy Spirit could come. The, this description of the Holy Spirit coming on them in uh, verses 4 and 5, it says, uh, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said you've heard from me. Verse 5, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. The Holy Spirit would be the instrument working through them to do the work of Christ. From then on, he would also be the one through whom all believers would be united together in the body of Christ. Okay? After that, they were given instructions to carry the gospel message to the ends of the world. So to summarize... The apostles ask Jesus, when is the kingdom going to be restored to Israel? Jesus answers, that's not for you to know. Only the Father knows. Instead, focus on the task of proclaiming the gospel to the world with the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what's taking place at this time. Now, 
going back to our big idea. When situations leave us feeling confused and uncertain, depend on the promises of God's Word. Depend on the promises of God's Word. How does that relate then to this part, to, the, to this aspect? Well, the disciples had been given promises. And in essence, they were just told to obey, to wait, and to go. They were looking for the kingdom. Jesus says, don't worry about the timing. Go do this. And we think of ourselves really in what God has called us to do and to be here at this time. Some of us right now are struggling with God's plan because our expectations, whatever they might be, aren't being met. And it seems that God perhaps has allowed for other obstacles to get in the way of what we think ought to be done. Okay, going back to this whole concept of seeing plans God, as, I'm sorry, seeing God's plan as an obstacle. That we have this sense of how life ought to go and what our plans are. And then for whatever reason, we're given a knuckleball. A knuckleball of health, a knuckleball of job, a knuckleball of, of difficulties in family, whatever the case may be. And we have, all of a sudden, our expectations upset and turned upside down, and we're wondering, okay, God, what's your plan? And what God is simply saying is, I have my plan. Follow me. Obey and just take the next step. What's the next step? The next step is simply living out our role in obedience. Perhaps the most predictable way that God allows obstacles in our walk with Christ are changes in health. Just as a point of application, I say these are predictable changes because we all know that as we get older, we don't get younger, the people around us get older, and the effects of aging impact how we live. This is not just simply arthritis. This is the effects of injury. This is long-term illness. This could be even changes in the body after having children. It's the effects on loved ones as well. I think just in my life in the past uh, 18 months, okay, some of the things that God has allowed to take place just within our family, with especially my oldest daughter, and how the Lord has seen fit to take an ideal of the way things ought to be and, and change that. Uh, you know, I, I love him desperately. I love him greatly. I think of Vaughn Stafford. And I've asked his permission to share this with you. And I've shared it with my college and career group. And I think of Vaughn. I, I've talked with Vaughn about how he lives. I've talked with Vaughn about how he walks. You know, Vaughn has to think about every step that he takes. He thinks about how his foot hits the ground, what kind of balance he has. He thinks about when he gets out of the automobile and steps down. We, we went to, uh, down to Columbus yesterday. Our, our, a few of us from the college and crew group, and we sat up in the, the nosebleeds. It was good seats for, for a basketball game. And you watch Vaughn go up the steps, holding on to the rail, being steady, and, and our seats got messed up. So he came back down, then he went back up. And, you know, that's, that's just Vaughn's life. And I think of Tim and Donna. I think of some of the health situations and things that, that God has, has placed in, in their situation, in their lives. And... I don't know that that was their expectations when they said, I do. And I could see how, you know, after a little while, it could be really frustrating. And I've talked with Vaughn, and, and I've asked him even that same question. Vaughn, do you ever get frustrated? He's like, oh, yeah, it gets frustrating. Vaughn doesn't, I, you know, Vaughn's almost like this, this super type of guy, because I don't ever see him complain about things. Um, it's a blessing to see that. I hear him talk about spiritual things. And, and um, all that to say, I know that the Stafford family is not unique in the situation. I, I, I suppose if we really wanted to, we could probably highlight many families within our church that have had, just from a health standpoint, their expectations realigned. And it's easy from a human standpoint to view those things as obstacles to God's plan. Like, and, and God allows this, or this happens, and so as a result, I have to somehow get over them and get through them. In fact, God just wants us to stop, and what is the next thing that I should do in light of this? And for some, it might just simply be to pray that God has allowed this to take place, and my service, my ability to 
minister the way I wish I could has now kind of been put to nil, at least for a period of time, so all I can do is just pray. I mean, think about that. The bare minimum of us having functioning brains and bodies, the bare minimum for us being Christians is being able to pray. I mean, that takes literally no one with us. It's just us and God. And yet, how important is prayer? All of us would say, yes, it's essential. The work of the ministry, the expansion of the gospel, the building of the church is dependent on prayer. I mean, seriously, the absolute minimum of a Christian and their physical abilities We can at least pray. So I have a Bible study on Friday afternoons uh, in an assisted living facility. And I'm going through a section on prayer. We've been talking about prayer now for the last several months. Because here are these people who literally sit all day. What can they do? They can't go hang up door hangers. They can't even come to church. They can pray. So if you think even beyond that, if we have any amount of contact with other people, any contact, then we can still be an ambassador for Jesus Christ. We can still reflect Christ's likeness in our behavior. We can still perhaps even articulate the gospel with the contact that we have. And it might not be you know, the explicit gospel every single time we, we come into contact with people. But if we have any type of contact, we can still represent Jesus Christ here on earth. So I say that in light of the quote-unquote obstacles that have been placed in our lives. For the disciples, the obstacle was Jesus is now gone. I mean, the leader of the band of men, he's now in heaven. And yet, they had joy. Christ had prepared them. Christ had taught them. Now, their next step, go back to Jerusalem and wait for the Holy Spirit. Wait for that baptism of the Spirit. Okay? Just go. Just wait. And for us as believers, it may be, what's the next step? Okay? I have all this around me, but what does God want me to do in light of this around me? Instead of seeing it as an obstacle and a, a kind of a, 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 an end game for what our perception of obedience ought to be, we really ought to ask, okay, how can I obey in this circumstance? All right? So, Instead of seeing God's plan as an obstacle, remember his instruction to you. But we should also recognize that God has given us more than his word. He's given us more than just the promises of his word that he will use and he will bring out to fruition. He's also baptized us into the body of Christ by his spirit. We've been adopted into the family of God. And as you all know, there will be those who merely profess to be part of the family of God, intermingling with those of us who really are part of the family of God. And this is where we look at the second part of this chapter, verses 12 through 26. So verses 1 through 11, you have the ascension of Jesus. And in verse 12, the disciples return back to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered the city, they went up to the upper room where they were staying, that is, where Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. Okay, the 11 disciples, minus Judas Iscariot. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer, along with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus. All right? So they obey God. Or I'm sorry, they, they obey Jesus. They go back. They're enjoying communion with one another, that that relationship with one another. But as we continue to read in Acts chapter 1, there's a pressing issue. And it's the one that I just mentioned. It's the fact that there was wheat and tares. And there were tares among the wheat. And that there was an unbeliever in the midst. And that unbeliever was no longer there. And it needed to be addressed. Instead, Instead of seeing obstacles in our walk with the Lord, God has told us to depend on his promises. And if I can put it this way, really for the second promise that we see here in Acts, instead of seeing man's failure as embarrassment, remember your spiritual family and draw closer to them. Instead of seeing man's failure as an embarrassment, remember your spiritual family 
and draw closer to them. So we're to remember God's promises that he's made through his word, and we're also to remember the family of Christ that we have been given. We see this starting in verse 15. At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren. A gathering about, of about 120 persons was there together. And he said, brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those arrest, who arrested Jesus. For he was counted among us and received his share in the ministry. And he goes on to describe Judas's uh, suicide and the gory nature of it. But he also, I mean, his point here is to say that this was not something that was outside of God's control. Okay? So obstacle number one, that, or maybe if I could put it this way, unmet expectation number one, that Jesus was no longer with them, and now they were left to themselves, as it were. They were given God's promises, but they were to go back and obey. But expectation number two, that those men that were with Jesus and followed Jesus would continue to follow Jesus. And yet that didn't happen. In fact, we see someone who was intimate with these men betray the Savior. And it was a surprise. And it needed to be addressed. And so as we look at this, Man's, we have to understand that, first of all, man's obedience, I'm sorry, man's disobedience is never outside of God's control. Peter brought their attention to the reality of Judas's defection and the Old Testament precedent. Look at verse 20. For it is written in the book of Psalms, let his homestead be made desolate and let no one dwell in it and let another man take his office. Now, if you were to, if you have notes on the side of your, your Bible, you have, you know, in, in my Bible, it's in all caps, and there's, there's little notes that say what part of Psalms it's in. If you were to go back and look at that, you would see that David is talking. David's writing these Psalms. He's written these Psalms. And he's referring to one of his men, Ahithophel, and the betrayal of Ahithophel. Considering that Jesus was the king and that he was of the line of David, it should be noted that Ahithophel's defection really is a, a picture of a greater defection to come. That Ahithophel abandoned David, betrayed him, and Judas betrayed Jesus. So Peter is explaining this to the men, to the disciples, and he says in verse 16, the scripture had to be fulfilled. What does that mean? It means that this was underneath the control of God. That it wasn't somehow outside of his purview. Now when this happens, we have to think just in the context of life. When this happens, when you have someone align with a body of believers and they defect or they abandon the faith or apostatize or whatever, this person who has identified with the body of believers at one point in time but is no longer there, Okay? There are two bad ways, at least as I was thinking about this, there's two bad ways of thinking when someone defects from the faith or at least publicly contradicts the faith with significant sin. Maybe there's sin in their lives that, that really just contradict their profession. The first bad way of thinking is that this is something that must be hidden. Okay? Maybe for fear of public shame, once strong relationships are now strained, that this individual that perhaps you came and worshipped with that you enjoy memories of ministry with. They've turned their back on the faith. They no longer align with the faith at all. And that there's a sense of maybe embarrassment, especially if it's someone really close to you. I mean, I think of the 12 disciples. And I think that as those 12 were spending literally years with one another, that there are levels of, of comfort, levels of intimacy. And I'm thinking about the disciples that... Luke sees fit to mention all 11 of them. And thinking that these guys were probably looking back wondering, how did we not see this? Were we just dumb? I mean, Jesus even said in John 6, remember when, when in John 6, verse 66, when, when Jesus is saying, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you cannot be my disciple. And then these people just leave. And then Jesus looks at the 12 and he says, are you going to go too? And what does Peter say? Peter says, where should we go? You have the words of life. And he was absolutely right. But what does Jesus respond? Jesus responds and said, you've spoken the truth, but isn't it true that one of you is also a devil? 
And for whatever reason, that seemed to go over their head. Because even at the Last Supper, you know, they're, they're debating amongst themselves who in the world it is that, that, that was going to betray them. And then when Judas actually leaves, you know, we're told that they assumed that he was going to do something like give to the poor. So here are these 11 disciples that just went completely over their heads. And now Peter is coming to them, explaining that, listen, this wasn't outside of God's control. This was something that was totally underneath his control. And as we see this playing out in our lives, you know, there's a tendency of, of thinking, man, if I just would have known, or if I could have just seen these, these, these things, if I could have just seen the signs, maybe I could have done something about it. And there's a sense of shame or sense of embarrassment that somehow God's program was set back by us. That's not what we're seeing here. The other thing we're not seeing here is a level of bitterness on behalf of some of the disciples about the defector. And maybe if I can put it in, in, in a different way, there isn't this assumption that all Christians similar to the defector are just as hypocritical. And viewing other Christians through a lens of suspicion and doubt, we don't see the disciples somehow looking skeptically at one another. We don't see the 120 individuals there that are meeting having this sense of skepticism. In fact, what we see is a level of unity. That there's a sense of, of bringing them with one another in prayer, in unified purpose. You know, just thinking of just common examples of, of how this plays out. Many times we have parents who have children that they've raised in the Lord, and all of a sudden they seem to chuck it. And they go. Why is this? And there could be this sense of embarrassment, this sense of shame of, of how did I not see the signs? And how did I, you know, what, what things did I, did I not do? And, and just the sense of, of now I need to give all of my attention to try to revitalize this person at the expense of my own walk with the Lord and even my walk with my spouse and my other children. But now I'm going to just completely invest in that person. And yet we don't see that. The other thing we, we, we can also see here is sometimes in our own context, second and third generation Christians who've seen the failings of people that led them, that helped oversee them, and as a result, almost getting a, a, a free pass on, on worldliness because of the failures, because of the things that were done perhaps to them. And, and having this hypercritical spirit of they failed me, they said they were something when in fact they weren't. They're just a bunch of hypocrites, and that's what this all is. And I'm done. And we don't see this here. I mean, we see a person failing badly in the form of Judas. But what we don't see is disruption amongst the people. You know what we do see? This is awesome. What we do see is faithfulness of the true followers of Jesus Christ. This is the blessing of it all. Those who met in the upper room numbered about 120. It's interesting that Luke brings 120. Now you think after the resurrection there were about 500 people that witnessed the resurrection. So this is a smaller number to be sure. But those who met, they were no super Christians. They weren't these great heroes. In fact, uh, one commentator even brings out the importance of having Mary, the mother of Jesus, who are, are you know, are, are, where, where many religions would place this high level of, of holiness and superiority to Mary. And yet, Mary obviously felt the need to be with the disciples and the other followers of Jesus and to pray with them. But it's also interesting to note who else was with them. At the verse, end of verse 14, it says, the mother of Jesus and with his brothers, the brothers who were initially skeptical of Jesus. Those who criticized him, who thought he was crazy, they were now part of this believing unit. Yet, there were some who used to doubt Jesus. There were some who still doubted Jesus. You know, we don't have time, but looking back at Matthew chapter 28, it says that Jesus appeared and that some believed. But there's this little phrase in there that says, and others doubted. How do you see the resurrected Jesus and doubt? And that was just the reality of it. 
And if anything, it speaks to the authenticity of the gospel account, that it wasn't just, you know, those critics who would say, oh, well, I was just trying to just, you know, broad brush it and make it everything look really great and wonderful. And of course, everyone believed there's Jesus. But, but I mean, seriously, you take someone who has died and now is alive, why wouldn't everyone believe him? And yet, Matthew adds that note, and some doubt it. This was a reality. But many believed these individuals devoted themselves to prayer with one another and were like-minded. I find it interesting here that Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren and no one yelled out, hypocrite, you fake. You're the one that denied Jesus. No, nobody did that. They all recognized their failure. No super Christians. They were brought together out of obedience to the Lord. Remember, he told them to go back and wait. But they are also brought together by the teaching and the explanation of the word. And while this isn't the church, we see a picture of what the church was about to become. Instead of a group of individuals who had failed and wallowing in their failure and going their separate ways, detaching from one another, we see a group of individuals acting corporately. And in fact, not just acting corporately and being with one another, but taking that next step of obedience by appointing the twelfth apostle of necessity. Look at verse 21. Therefore it is necessary that of the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who's also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to occupy this ministry and apostleship from which Judas had turned aside to go to his own place. Judas had abandoned his position. And so there must be, the text says, a replacement there. And by the way, who was available for replacement? Not just two schmucks. But these were individuals who had been with Jesus. Look at verse 21. I'm sorry, verse 22, beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us. So these were individuals who hadn't been mentioned beforehand, but were there literally the entire way. That's a faithful group of individuals. That's a faithful band of followers. Their grief, their frustration, if it was even that, at the failure of Judas, did not paralyze them. Instead, the word of God motivated them to action. You know, as Christians, we must do all to the glory of God, right? Even grieving to the glory of God. This could have been an opportunity for grieving, for commiseration, for looking at the failure of Judas and seeing corporate failure. That wasn't what was there. You know, just thinking, as I was preparing of this sermon, I'm thinking of, of people in our church that have asked for prayer repeatedly for members of their family that don't know Christ, or perhaps at one point in time profess Christ, but then have left that profession and give no evidence of salvation. And in that time, what a blessing it is to see those people not only burdened for those individuals, but growing closer with their brothers and sisters in Christ. And that's the way it ought to be. Their difficulties have driven them closer to their spiritual family and not away from it. You know, I think of 2 Corinthians chapter 1 where it talks about, you know, Paul is talking to the Corinthian believers who, where it says that they were able to help comfort other believers with the comfort they themselves have received. And having seen that play out in some of your lives is a blessing. I'm sure that there were some of the disciples that felt tricked by Judas, like I said before. And when someone close to us fails spiritually, we might take it personally. Someone we're discipling. We sit down, we share the word with them, we invest our lives in them, and then they're off the grid. They're gone. What did I do to blow it? What did I, I, you call them, you text them, you think about the hours you invested in them, you think about the prayer you put in them, and they're gone. And then, God, what am I doing? 
We might even feel embarrassed. We might feel ashamed that we didn't do enough. Human tendency at that point is to withdraw from the spiritual family, to withdraw from our disciple-making responsibilities. Man, if that's the way it's going to be, I'm not doing that again. Man, that hurts. I had enough problems of my own. Hey, I'll find my one. I got my one area of service. It's not going to be that, though. For every defector, though, just keep this in mind, especially in a room like this right now. For every defector, there are dozens of servants who are persevering. Dozens. Seriously, for every person that I can think of that has disappointed me from a discipleship standpoint, from a, from a, a witnessing standpoint, I can think of literally dozens of souls that are still persevering to this day. What a perspective change that would have been for the disciples. And it speaks to really just the whole point of this book, that the gospel will go forward. Yes, there will be tares among the wheat, but it's not going to thwart the mission. You know, I had a buddy of mine that I saw in October. I was uh, up in Michigan, and uh, it was a guy I hadn't seen in 20 years. Uh, we went to school together. Uh, he and I actually did some ministry things together while we were in school, and I saw him, and, and here's a guy that's, that's walking with the Lord and, and doing what's right, and it's just a blessing. He and I were just kind of catching up, and, and we were out in the parking lot, and he was leaving, and I was leaving, and so we said goodbye and whatnot, and the Lord just, as he you know, wound up the window, and he was just about to pull out, I was like, man, I, gotta, I, I just got to talk with him. And so I went up and banged on his window, and I said, hey, hey, Kevin, I just want you to know how much of a blessing it is to see you walking for the Lord, and that you know, there's a lot of noise from those who don't. I mean, there's, there can be a lot of fanfare when someone walks away from the Lord. Uh, and yet, those who continue to persevere and just do the next step in their responsibility to love their wife, love their family, love their church, it's not sensational. But man, it's a blessing. So, Kevin, praise the Lord. We gave each other a big hug, and I pray that Kevin perseveres. Not a very sensational illustration, but I'll tell you what. My prayer, and I know our prayer, is for that with our church as well. Many of you are doing that. And when you're frustrated by the defector, and even if that defector is in your family, think of the dozens who are persevering. Think of the souls who are serving well. And be encouraged. Remember, in closing, when situations could leave us feeling confused and uncertain, we must depend on the promises of God's word and the blessing of other Christians. The circumstances of life, sometimes following Christ, leaves you feeling alone or confused. You must never forget that God has given you his word and his people. And those things cannot be expendable for the believer. God's word and God's people. Whatever we do, God's word, God's people will always be integral. They'll always be an essential part of our identity in Christ. The disciples' circumstances from a human standpoint should naturally lead to distress and uncertainty, but instead they were filled with joy and confidence expectation. Where did they go? What did they do? You know what they did? They, went, they obeyed the Lord. They went back to Jerusalem. They didn't go fishing. They didn't return to former careers. They prayed, and they spent time with each other. That's what they did. In looking at these principles, depending on the promises of God's word and blessings of other Christians, remembering these things, clinging to these things, just as a point of application, since we depend and rely on the promises of God's word, what effort then are you putting into obedience? If we're expecting obedience to somehow be a let go and let God moment where all of a sudden it's easy, it's natural, it's this sense of, wow, boy, I don't want to disobey at all. That's just not going to happen. Because there's always going to be something inside of us that doesn't want to obey, and that's called our flesh. 
And until we have a glorified body and until we're in the presence of God, we're going to be opposing that. And so there's this sense of taking that next step of obedience might not be sensational. It might, in fact, be difficult. What effort are we putting into that? Putting your trust in the promises of God is necessary. It's obvious as a believer. But the extent of your trust will be shown in the extent of your obedience. Okay? So how much we trust in the promises of God will be manifest in how we obey. And sometimes, frankly, the hardest things are just simply doing the next thing over and over and over and over again. Just doing it tomorrow and doing it the next day and trusting in God that you're honoring him. And the second question I have, especially in regards to recognizing just what a blessing the other believers are to us, are to us. What things are crowding into our lives that make the time with the believers and the quality time with believers expendable? Maybe if I can ask it a little bit different way. Have you allowed the failures of other believers to influence the extent to which you fellowship and obey? Teens, have you allowed the failures of your parents, their perceived hypocrisy, or maybe their real hypocrisy, to influence how you obey? and how you fellowship. Those of you who, like me, perhaps grew up with a, a level of Christian training that was extraordinary, perhaps in the day school, and I know I'm speaking to a number of us in this room that enjoyed that privilege. Have you let the presidents, the principals, the teachers who you saw as too legalistic, have you let them influence how you fellowship with the believers? and negatively rebounding from that? Have we lost sight of just what a blessing it is to be with other believers? Because they are the precious ones for whom Christ died? Have we lost sight of how precious these saints are, choosing sometimes just the comforts of being home, of, of doing what we want to do, and not putting forth the effort to invest in the souls around us. I'm not talking about Christian perfectionism. You must never miss a church ever, even if there's freezing rain. All you live streamers, repent. Okay? <laughs> not saying that. But can I ask, a, 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 I want to ask a serious question. Do you enjoy the ordinances of the church? the things that really the church does with one another and can only do with one another, like communion. Enjoying the baptism of believers. Enjoying singing to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Enjoying the presentation of the word. Enjoying the corporate nature of our prayer. We are constantly going to be fighting against things that will creep in and try to make those things expendable. It's going to be a lifelong battle. And it could be even some of the obstacles that we talked about earlier on. The knuckleballs that we weren't expecting, the expectations that haven't been met. It's not supposed to be this way. And as a result, I have an excuse to step back, find my one and just stay in my one. And, and to which we would say, yes, your one is essential. Absolutely. Praise the Lord for your one. Not taking for granted your one. But at the same time, what about the saints around you? What about your role in the body of Christ that 1 Corinthians 12 says is essential? We cannot allow our unmet expectations to dictate our spiritual lives. God has called us to trust him to take the next step of obedience and to obey alongside our brothers and sisters in the church. That's what these wounded disciples, these now disciples who were on their own, but yet still holding on to the promise that Christ would never leave them nor forsake them. And then watching what God was going to do through them. And what an exciting story it is. We're just beginning. It's awesome stuff. And we get to be a part of this history. This is 
our church history. This is our pedigree. Wow. And we have a privilege to be a part of it. Let's pray. God, thanks so much for this day. Lord, thank you for the promises of your word and the blessings of your people. And Lord, when circumstances really want to, or when circumstances can disorient and they can realign perhaps even just the way that we, um, just the way that we live our day-to-day lives, God, remind us of what you've provided both in your word and with your people. Lord, may we look to the examples of the apostles who loved your word, who loved one another, and Lord, who saw you work mightily through them as they obeyed. Lord, you've done great things in the lives of these people tonight, and you're doing great things in them. Lord, I pray that you would soften the hearts of those who might be bitter towards those who feel that they have been done wrong. Lord, I pray that you would soften the hearts of those who are embarrassed, perhaps, about um, their spiritual legacy not being what they wish it would be or maybe not being what someone else in the churches is. God, I pray that you might warm them and endear them to your word and to your people. Lord, I pray for those who have gone out from us, who were not of us. Lord, would they become part of us as they have an opportunity to live and breathe. Every morning that they wake up is an opportunity to to turn from their sin and to do right. And we, Lord, pray for our sons and daughters. We pray for our brothers, biological brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray for saints that we have shared ministry with that are not or, or don't seem to give any evidence of being born again. Would you change their hearts? Save them. Bring them back. Lord, bring them to a saving knowledge of you. We beg you. And Lord, may we just take delight and glory and joy and security in just doing the next thing in obedience. Not the sensational, not the life-shattering, earth-changing, but just the next part of obedience. And Lord, we'll delight as we do it with one another. In Jesus' name, amen.